Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in yet another sunny day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Tony Crabtree, founder and chief executive of Juniper Research, a marketing research company based in Hampshire. Tony, hello. Hi, thanks for inviting me on. Well, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, before we uh, move on to our destination, which is leadership, uh, we should touch on the ongoing COVID outbreak. How has this affected your business? Um, it's been mixed, really. We, we're quite fortunate that we serve um, a number of markets that have been okay during the pandemic, the telecoms industry, the digital technology, and the financial markets, and they've been fairly okay. Having said that, there has been a number of clients who have put projects on hold or hesitated in renewing. So, yeah, so we mixed, really. Of course, we've had to move the team from an office-based environment in the business park to working at home, which has been quite a big transition, but... Well, for me particularly, I, I found it very odd the first week or two sort of trying to manage a business sitting here by myself, but it's worked out okay, and we've used video mm-hmm. calling for, for quite a lot of the time. Now, do you see a road roadmap back to where you were before the outbreak? Uh, do you have any plans on how you can operate uh, or increase business during that time, or is this really uh, a wait-and-see sort of situation? Well, certainly we had to, because we do a lot of forecasting, we forecast particular markets. We did a lot of work on uh, trying to incorporate the effect of COVID on our forecast. So I think that's an opportunity for us to to communicate the the impact on on these markets to our clients. So that's an opportunity. But I think it's, I think we've got to wait and see what happens in the autumn, winter when um, the unemployment uh, impacts. And we just have to see how the market goes because, I think we're in sort of suspended animation at the moment until some of these furlough schemes, et cetera, sort of finish and play out. Well, we should move on to the subject of leadership. I always like to start this part of the conversation off by asking the same simple question. What does the word leader mean to you? I suppose when I when I hear the word leader, I, I think about those people on the TV, the you know, the, the CEOs and, and, and the, the head chefs and, and they're the leaders you see on TV. And I don't really buy into that sort of model, you know, the sweary, aggressive chef and the bullying CEO. Mm-hmm. For me, I'm sort of more of an introverted kind of guy. I don't lead from up front. Um, I, I've employed certainly people with certain experiences, certain knowledge, certain skills. And I think my job as a leader is to try and bring out those qualities for the good of the business and the good of all of us in the business. And I guess I, I work on that basis. Whether that's called leadership, I'm not sure, but I think it, it works for our business. Now, do you believe uh, that there is a difficulty in finding new leaders today in the world of business? It's a difficult one. Um, I think you can, through recruitment, find find leadership qualities, but who knows whether that's going to really work out for you in the long run. We've had experiences of, of good and bad along the way, but generally we, we've found some good leaders who can lead some of our research in, in certain areas, which uh, you know we succeeded on. So I, th- I think with experience you can pick out potential leaders, but uh, the fruits of their their work is only sort of uh, apparent years on. I think. 
How do we want to train the next uh, generation of emerging leaders? Uh, should it be through mentorship? Should it be through some sort of uh, leadership course? Uh, or is it just good old-fashioned role modeling? Role models. I mean, role models certainly affected me throughout my, my, my formative years. And I think if you have a good role model in your career, then that can help shape your style and leadership going forward. So I think that's very important. Training can be helpful as well, I think, um, but there's only so much. There's this thing, are you a born leader or can you train it? I, I sort of think you can bring out the best in people. If you recognize there are different leadership styles, then you can try and tap into what works for different people. I think training can do that, well, effective training can, yes. Now, when it comes to the role models that you had coming up, uh, give me a bit more of an insight on that. Um, well, I suppose I've had good experiences and bad experiences. I remember when I was uh, a young student, I had a six-month industrial placement uh, at, a, at a software company, and I hated every minute. It was a toxic environment. It was the, I didn't enjoy the job and the role, but I learned a lot from it in hindsight. On the positive side, I've had a, some excellent, excellent leaders in my life. Um, I was eight years at a company called Arja Wiggins, which used to be Wiggins Teep. And my boss there, Terry, was was a great leader, a little bit how I sort of uh, uh, model myself on. He was not an upfront leader of, of the team, but he was a good operator. And he motivated the team very well. Um, he fought the fires when the fires needed to be fought. And uh, we also enjoyed our jobs and got the job done. A bit of a cliche, but that, that's the truth. Now, when it comes to that sort of firefighting, um, some leaders find the most difficult aspect within work or within the work environment be, to be conflict resolution when uh, one employee has a has an issue with another or their work isn't up to scratch what is your methodology behind the way in which you uh, neutralize conflict thankfully i haven't had too many instances over my working career but there has been one or two i guess um i think it's easier if the conflict is between the individual and their job or the business because normally you have um, a, a job description to fall back on or you've got requirements of the job or expectations. But So that can be solved fairly straightforwardly, I think. I think when there's conflict between individuals, then there's the challenge because sometimes there's undercurrents that you can't really get hold of. Um, well, I think you've got to find common ground. I think uh, if you can, you've got to find that piece of, piece of uh, common ground that they, they can both uh, agree on and then come to some kind of compromise to work, 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 work forward. However, with experience, though, I've learned you cannot win every battle. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you, sometimes you've got to instruct what's going to happen, and they're going to work in this part of the business, and the other person's going to work in the other part of the business. You don't want to get to that state, but, you know, sometimes it, it, you have to. Now, when it comes to when you're looking for a new staff member, what are the aspects or attributes that you want in their character? I think it's, um, I, I love to see somebody who's enthusiastic. I love to see somebody who's got a bit of fire in their eyes, a bit of, um, um, uh, they've done the research on the job and they've shown the fact that they're interested in this particular job, our company, and they've got um, a good ground to begin with. Uh, and then, of course, you need to look at the skills that have certain skills to do certain jobs. And then there's a cultural aspect. 
will they fit in with the company? Mm. So those are the three things that I, I sort of uh, look for in, in, in recruitment. When it comes to setting that cultural um, basis within the organization, does this come through trial and error, or do you have a kind of a sociological master plan of how the company should operate? It's funny. We used to actually have um, a little test they had to go through that uh, to, to sort of match out their personalities and stuff. But to be honest with you, after a while, we thought we, you know, between the two or three of us, we normally have two or three of us on an interview. Um, we, we can sort of judge as to, to what, where we think their mm. character is, where they would fit in. But of course, you know, you, you shouldn't always recruit people who reflect yourself. Right. You, you know, I've learned that over the years. You, you need to recruit different types of people who can, who can, you know, bring new ideas to a different part of the business that you necessarily don't have. So it's a balancing thing, really. And you don't want to seem too overbearing either in trying to force a, a culture to exist. Absolutely, I mean, yeah. Famously, Henry Ford uh, used to have home visitors to make sure the home lives of his employees were up to Ford standards in, uh, in ways of cleanliness and social behavior, which is completely wow. unthinkable uh, today. Sure. So you have to find an in-between uh, sort of a, a middle ground. Um, unfortunately, our time together is drawing to its close. Uh, but before I let you go, what does the next 12 months have in store for Juniper Research? Well, we, we hope to grow in the next 12 months. We're already recruiting more analyst resource to, to expand our coverage, both in depth uh, and in terms of the sectors we cover. Um, we're also developing our um, web, web offering quite, quite substantially so that our clients can interrogate the data and the research much more in depth and granular. Um, but it would be nice to actually return to some kind of a normality in the next 12 mm. months. That would be, would be nice. Well, Tony, I'd love to have you back on when we do get back to that normality. Uh, and it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Tony, thank you. Thank you, Matthew. Very interesting. Thank you. That was Tony Crabtree, founder and chief executive of Juniper Research. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at, the mm. mo at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... You know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And um, 
you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So... And then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- you know, a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of... Because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th- the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room. For the f- I think it was in the 
final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlotte, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing I think that's such a key point though, because there's there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. For, for Absolutely. Uh, everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as done. a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, as you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals 
um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think they're, they're all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment. And uh, the job of the leadership or the management is to, tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many, um, because. They, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter you know, how gregarious and, and how... Um, impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of the ecb uh you took some pretty uh major steps early on um you brought in trevor bayliss as coach was always brought in um you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket now in the abstract what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially but also in in terms of 
players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move. In fact, we didn't have to move at the times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift our both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know about you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was I. Was, yeah. Actually, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, and you in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands: husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. 
And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we're, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think it's the, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary! I think it was the fifteenth of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day, and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f- for us to have that extra element of the the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc and you're wearing re- wearing red so what w- what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely no they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though, I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. potentially a, 
a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to, I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.